welcome again to our ministry. I'm Ken Bear, one of the pastors at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of faith dialogue. Today we're going to be back in the book of Acts as we continue our series called Unstoppable. And we'll see that the book of Acts is the story of the unstoppable church. You know, unstoppable is a word that comes to mind when you read through the history of the early church. Um, the obstacles that the early church faced were significant, but this group of believers were truly unstoppable. Today we'll be continuing our reading in the book of Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bible, you might want to get it, go ahead and open your Bible, turn to the second chapter of Acts. The book of Acts is a New Testament book. It immediately follows the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you'll see just to the right of that the book of Acts. And we're going to be reading beginning in chapter 1 or chapter 2 of the book of Acts beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they are all filled with the Holy Spirit. So as we begin with this text, it's, it's very well known. Uh, we'll want to pause just for a moment and ensure that we truly understand the context. You know, context is, is key in understanding any passage of the scriptures. You want to know what is this about? Why were they all together? And, and what's happening? In order to understand the context, we'll take a look at three very clear passages in the Bible that speak about this event. There are many more, but we'll focus just on, on these three. The first one is where Jesus promised the Holy Spirit, and that's in uh, the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. Uh, the second passage, Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem before he ascended into heaven. We read in the book of Acts, Jesus said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father has promised. You have heard me speak about it, for John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then the third passage, uh, this is regarding the Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was one of three major feasts that's found in Deuteronomy, in, uh, found in the New Testament. In the book of De Deuteronomy, it says this. It says, Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place that he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. You know, we spent some time last week on the instructions that Jesus had given the apostles that they were to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Uh, the apostles were not unfamiliar with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had taught them, and they had been taught that it was the Spirit of God that came upon the prophets and allowed them to prophesy. It, it was the Holy Spirit that came upon Samson and gave him his great strength. 
these followers of Jesus, and by now they were not just the 12, but uh, included probably the 70 disciples that had been sent out earlier just two by two. Uh, the women that were the first to go to the tomb on the, on the day of the resurrection, and likely others that had come to believe, like people like Nicodemus and, and Joseph of Arimathea, and likely uh, a couple of the family members of Jesus, namely uh, James and Jude. These apostles are the, the leaders of this group, now of, at 120 people on the day of Pentecost. And they were obedient, and they were in Jerusalem, and they were waiting. They were waiting because Jesus had told them to wait, but notice, Jesus gives, doesn't give a, a timeline. He doesn't tell them how long they're supposed to wait. He didn't say it was going to be 40 days or 7 weeks or 7 days. He just told them to, to wait. But fortunately for these apostles, for these disciples, the Feast of Pentecost was coming. This was just a, a week after Jesus had ascended into heaven. We won't go through the math in the, regarding the day of Pentecost, but Pentecost was supposed to be 50 days after Passover. And Jesus had spent 40 days with them. So figuring that there's a resurrection three days, somewhere around a week after Jesus ascends into heaven, the Feast of Pentecost was coming. Now, Pentecost was a very important feast. I want to spend a little time talking about what I mentioned briefly. Pentecost was one of the three major feasts called pilgrimage feasts of Israel. Every Jewish male that was able to was, able to, was supposed to travel to Jerusalem for these three feasts. God commanded the Israelites three times a year shall your young men appear before the Lord in the, God, the place that God chooses. And of course that was Jerusalem. You know, at Pentecost, historians estimate that there was probably more than a million people in Jerusalem. And they would be coming from all around that Asia, that Middle Eastern part, all the way into, into Europe. That's why we hear such strange sounding names like Mesopotamia and Cappadocia and Phygia and Pamphylia. It was Jerusalem that every feast, every sacrifice uh, to Jehovah God was to be, to be held. Now these three feasts were number one Passover and we actually know a lot about Passover. The second one was Pentecost which is a Greek word that means 50 as the Hebrew name for this feast was Shavuot meaning 50th and the third was the Feast of Tabernacles officially called Sukkot a Hebrew word meaning huts or booths. Over the centuries these feasts these celebrations changed a little in their celebration. For example Passover, as we know, was, the, was, was, was given by the angel of God passing over the people of Israel that were held in captivity in Egypt because they had sprinkled the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and the angel of God had passed over. But you know, after 70 AD when the temple was destroyed and the Jewish people were dispersed, uh, Passover took on a different type of celebration. For one thing, there was, there was no lamb. Um, what we have today for Passover is what we know as the Seder meal. And there's things like uh, unleavened bread and wine and bitter herbs. And, but as believers, see, this is the thing, as believers we understand that it was Jesus that was the Passover lamb. He was the Lamb of God. The Feast of Pentecost, or Shavuot, was always celebrated 50 days after Passover. It was the celebration of the early wheat harvest. However, early Jewish tradition also taught that Pentecost marked the day that the law was given to Israel. 
in the Torah, the Old Testament book of Leviticus, it specified that two loaves of leavened bread, not unleavened, but leavened bread, were to be presented to Jehovah God for the people of Israel. You know, it puzzled many Jewish scholars. Why, why two loaves of leavened bread? Why, why were two loaves to, sim to symbolize this Feast of Pentecost? Now, many Jewish scholars identified the two loaves as representing the, the two tablets of the law. You likely saw the movie. Charlton Heston comes down from Mount Sinai. He's got two big tablets, two tablets representing the law. However, we have the advantage of history. And we can look back to the first century Jerusalem with the coming of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And we see that these two loaves of bread likely signify something different. The first is the law that was given to Moses and the people of Israel. And then the second loaf representing the Holy Spirit. Two loaves, one for the law and one for the Spirit. Just as, as Moses and the law were to guide the people of Israel in the new covenant that we're living under today, we have the, we have the Holy Spirit. And the new covenant is said to be a, a better covenant based on better promises. That's in Hebrews 8.6. The new covenant provided the promise of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said that he would dwell in us. He would be in us, not just on us. This is why Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go, the helper will not be able to come. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so we see that the Feast of Pentecost, this feast of the 50th day after Passover, now embrace the giving of the, the Spirit of God. So let's look at these individual scriptures and we'll comment on them as we, we go along. Beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Uh, the text says the day of Pentecost had, had fully come. And again, remember, we didn't know, the apostles didn't know how long it was going to be, how long they would have to wait for the Holy Spirit. They were fortunate that it was the very next feast. A very brief time they really had to wait. They were fortunate because actually there are many times in the Bible that we see that the Lord doesn't mind us waiting for a while. For example, Abraham and Sarah waited 25 years, already being very old, so old that they weren't able to have children. They still had to wait 25 more years for their son Isaac to be born. Jacob had to wait seven years in order to marry Rachel. Joseph spent 13 years in the prison with, as Potiphar, with Potiphar. Um, and then Jesus even had to wait 30 years before he was baptized and began his public ministry. The fact that the Holy Spirit came soon, came just to a week later after Jesus ascended, gives us an idea that perhaps the Holy Spirit is truly essential. The apostles were to wait. There was not to be any traveling, no ministry, no preaching, no casting out devils, no, no fundraising. Uh, we also see that the gift of the Holy Spirit is, is worth waiting for. The gift of the Holy Spirit comes as He wills, often not according to our expectations, but He does what He needs to do. Now let's continue with the rest of verse 1. It says, they were all with one accord in one place. Now, this has nothing to do with a car, a Honda Accord. And as long as we're on that subject, let me tell you and make it clear to everybody that there was no coffee mentioned in the Bible, even though there is a book called Hebrews. Okay, 
enough of the levity, let's get on with the text. The text says that they were gathered together in one accord, meaning that they were sharing a common experience. They had the, the same purpose, the same mission, the same love of God. They were of the same heart. That's what it means to be of one accord. They shared one promise, and they were in one place, one small piece of geography in Israel, in the land of Judah, in Jerusalem. Likely the upper room near the temple. We can only imagine what these men and women were thinking. No doubt they prayed and they sang some hymns, but there was only one record, one brief record of a conversation they had prior to the Holy Spirit coming, and that, that conversation was the conversation that Peter led on how Matthias was to replace Judas. It was less probably a conversation and an event that was less than satisfying for many of them that were in attendance. Peter may have been a natural leader, but Peter was no Jesus. Jesus had been with them. He promised them the Holy Spirit, but presently they were on hold. They were in one accord, in addition to their common hope and their common faith, they probably also shared some common loss. Jesus had ascended. They worshipped him and they were joyful, but at the same time, I'm sure they, they missed Jesus. They also didn't fully understand what they were waiting for. There was this promise, but it was a promise only. They, they weren't sure what was to come. So let's continue with verse 2. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a, rush, a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. You know, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the word for the Spirit, as in the Holy Spirit, is the same word for breath or wind. Uh, the word is pneuma, spelled with a P. It's the same word that we, in the English, that we get the word for pneumonia. This sign, this mighty rushing wind, was a, a unique event. It was not likely to be repeated. It's, probably that, it's probable that none of us that are believers and experienced uh, with the baptism of the Holy Spirit have ever experienced a, a mighty rushing wind. Um, however, there are some precedents in the Old Testament associating God with the wind. In Genesis, for example, in the very first two verses of the book of Genesis, it says, we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering or blowing over the waters of the newly created earth. In Genesis 2-7, God breathes into Adam. In, in Ezekiel 37, it says, uh, prophesy to the, to the breath. Prophesy, O son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So notice the words also, suddenly. You know, sometimes God moves suddenly. There was a sound, a real sound, something that you can't touch, but it's just as real. You hear it with your ears. And the text says that the sound came from, from heaven. It, it wasn't of earth. It was, it was heavenly. The text says that it was mighty, full of power. The Holy Spirit came with might, being able to accomplish anything that he was to accomplish. So let's continue. Verse 3. It says, Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat on each of them. Uh, as you recall, John the Baptist's words, uh, he said that Jesus would baptize with the uh, Holy Spirit and with fire. Uh, the idea of association of fire in the Bible is usually for purification. Notice the text says, as of fire, which means it may not have been real fire. It looked like fire, but nothing was actually burned. 
The Bible says in Zechariah that God will refine them, refine you and me, as silver is refined, and will try them as gold is tried. Well, how is gold tried? It's, it's tried with fire. They shall call on my name, and I will hear them, so just as refiner uses fire to make pure gold. Also, uh, a fire can burn away all of that which is temporary, leaving only that which will last. This is, a, this is an excellent illustration of the principle that the filling of the Holy Spirit illuminates, but it also purifies. Notice the text said, the Holy Spirit, these tongues like fire divided and sat on each of them. Think of this word sat as the same or similar to something that is seated. It, if it's seated, it's, it's permanent. It's taking up resonance. Just as Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. We can also look at this verse and see that in the past, under the Old Covenant, the Holy Spirit rested on God's people collectively. Collectively. That is that Israel and the Jews were the, the chosen people. But under the New Covenant, the covenant we have today, the Holy Spirit rests on God's people individually. The tongues of fire sat on each of them individually. Let's go on. Verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came as the wind and the tongues and as, fi as a fire, but that was a, just a temporary phenomenon. A, a visual reminder of uh, the true gift, being filled with the Holy Spirit. You know, when we receive a gift that is nicely wrapped, it has a beautiful bow, it's, it's, it has brilliant or, or wonderful wrapping paper, remember, we always remember it's just the container. It, it's glorious to behold, but the real present, the real gift is, is what's inside. And we're told that the Holy Spirit will inhabit each individual person that knows Jesus, that acknowledges Jesus as, as Lord and Savior. It's the Holy Spirit that dwells within them. And the Bible says that as a result, we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. The sound, the wind, the tongues, the fire departed, but the, the Spirit remained. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Paul says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? This is what Jesus was talking about. The apostles likely had no idea what Jesus meant when he said that this coming and filling of the Holy Spirit was so good, so essential for the work of their ministry, for the work of their ministry as a church in the community, that Jesus said it would be better for him to leave the earth bodily so that the Holy Spirit would come. Now, let's get to the second half of verse 2, the phenomenon of speaking in tongues. Uh, uh, this is actually for, uh, verse 4. So let me read to you the rest of the scriptures beginning in for, verse 4b. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Then they were all amazed and marveled saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Parthian and Medes, the Emilites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, uh, Phy Phygera 
in Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongue and the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. So we, we begin this section with a simple question. Why did I bring this passage or break this passage in the middle of verse 4? Well, for a couple of reasons. And we'll see. First, the verse numbers and even the punctuation really isn't in the original manuscripts. It was added much later. In fact, here's a, a little trip down history lane. Uh, there's a guy named Robert Stefani, and he's one of the most important men regarding biblical textual history. He lived in Paris in the 16th century. He was a very learned man, a true scholar of Latin, Greek, and Hebrew. However, he wasn't a theologian. He was a printer. He was one of the early masters, a great master, of the new mechanical printing press made possible by Johannes Gutenberg. And he was the one that added the verse numbers to the New Testament. His ultimate achievement would be the creation and printing of the complete Greek text of the entire Bible known as the Texas Receptus. Okay, so history lesson is over. Now, the reason I separate this teaching in the book of Acts is because that the people in the street, the crowd of people, didn't see the tongues of fire or experience the mighty rushing wind. The Holy Spirit wasn't coming for them. The people in the street were in Jerusalem for Pentecost, the feast of Shavuot. They were not praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit. They heard the language, the tongues, and this is what got their attention. The verse says, and they began to speak with other tongues. This is a, a skill, a, a talent, a gift that was given to the 120 by the Holy Spirit. The text is clear that all of those present, not only the 12 apostles, all of those present began to speak with other tongues. We'll find out in the next verses that these were languages, dialects, that they were never taught. And they spoke these languages. The text says it was, they were speaking as the Spirit gave them, gave them utterance. So let's go on, verses 5 and 6. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Uh, we had said that the law required that the Jewish men were to come to Jerusalem three times a year. The text says that these were Jews, devout men, from every nation under heaven. Well, you know, while the law required attendance, it was those that were devout that would actually take the trip. They would actually come to Jerusalem. They were willing and able to travel to Jerusalem, and many came from distant lands. Note that many of these may have been some of the same ones that were there for Passover when many of them got together as an angry mob and demanded the execution of Jesus. Just think about that. Probably many of the same people. The text says that when this sound occurred, a, a crowd gathered quickly. They heard a sound and then they, they gathered quickly, being attracted to the sound. Most likely, this was the combined voices of 120 filled with the Holy Spirit and praising God. However, it could have also been the sound of the mighty rushing wind. You know, the crowd was in the street, but now they were directed towards the place of where the sound was coming from. 
Traditionally, we think of the crowd coming together under a balcony because Peter would be coming out on the balcony soon. The Bible really doesn't have that kind of specificity. It, it does say that the 120 are in a, a room, likely a building close to the temple courts. Because there was 120, it was probably a, a relatively large structure. Um, it probably had porches and colonnades and rooms. The text continues. They were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. The confusion here is because everyone heard them speak in his own language. It doesn't say that some in the crowd were able to pick out somebody speaking their language. Nor does it say that the crowd heard many languages. But everyone collectively heard they understood what was being said in their own language. So here's an important question, and that is, is this gift of tongues that's recorded here in the second chapter of Acts, is it a miracle of the speaker, or is it a miracle of the hearer, or is it both? Well, based on the language of the text, I would suggest it's actually both. Let's continue reading and we'll find this out. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all of these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Uh, the author Luke is, is actually quite precise in his terminology here, in his choice of words. The speakers spoke other languages, and the hearers heard their own language, their own native tongue, and they could also identify a Galilean dialect. That is a miracle of both the speaker and the hearer. Notice the crowd identifies that these people as Galileans. In essence, they were saying, I can understand what they are saying, and I'm amazed because I hear them clearly in my own language, but I also can de detect that they are not native speakers of my language because I can detect a Galilean dialect. Historians tell us that these people from Galilee, the Galileans, were thought to be very uncultured and, and poor speakers. They had a very heavy, very thick accent and they were looked down upon the people of, by the people of Jerusalem who spoke a more carefully punctuated and articulate dialect. You know, detecting a dialect underneath a language is, is actually common. We do it all the time. You can tell when somebody's from New York or you can tell when somebody's from, from Texas. Uh, when we were in Mexico, uh, my wife and I were amused because we went to the local Chinese restaurant and we heard Spanish being spoken but a very detectable, very distinguishable Chinese accent. So let's continue and this is the fun part with all the unusual nines, uh, all the unusual uh, names. Uh, verse 9, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and, and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. You know, this was, this was Jerusalem, probably one of the most diverse cities at that time in the entire world. It was uniquely multinational, multilingual. Uh, since this was one of the three pilgrim feasts, Jews of the dispersion came from all over the world and they were in the city at the same time. While these pilgrims heard what the, these pilgrims heard was their their native language. Uh, in all likelihood these travelers were multilingual as well. 
Arabic was a common language of the Middle East. Hebrew was the language of Judah. And Greek was the second language, the language of commerce and business and politics uh, uh, for most of the people. Latin was a language of the Roman Empire, but it was really not in common use at the time. Many may not be familiar with these names of these places, these languages and these people groups. Let me summarize by saying these Jewish pilgrims came from an area as far away as Greece. Many were from modern-day Turkey, Iran, and Iraq. Some of the names most likely refer particularly to languages and not places, such as Phrygia, which is an ancient language related to Greek and Armenian. The end of the text reads this. We hear them speaking in our own tongue is the wonderful works of God. You know, the birth of the church on Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the introduction into the New Covenant that ultimately would brace all people, all of this was a fulfillment of what God had promised Abram way back in Genesis. God had promised Abram that through his descendants, all of the people of the earth would be blessed. This is what makes the church unstoppable. God had chosen Abraham and the people of Israel to be his people, his, his representatives. But we see here in these verses today the beginning of God's glory, the wonderful works of God being poured out on all people. This was the purpose of God. This is the glory of God, and this is why the Holy Spirit came. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord for the opportunity to get together like this and to be able to pray and to learn about the second chapter of Acts. And we give you all the praise and the glory in Jesus' name.